Well, one of the things we've learned over the last few years is that we, and and I and I put myself in this as well. I don't want to stand a, as one who thinks as himself superior to everyone else. I'm I'm learning along with everybody else, and uh, hopefully, we're learning right. Because if we're not learning and uh, if we're not progressing in our theological understanding, um, then uh, that's you know woe is us. But I think what we've done is we've we've learned over the last few years, especially that there we, we have a long way to go with regard to retrieving orthodox formulations of the Trinity, orthodox formulations of the Incarnation, uh, as well as you know things like the law gospel distinction and um, very important facets of our theology that I think for many decades we just took for granted as 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 simple things that we already have a grasp on things you know the basics that we we it's already a granted that we that we know it's already a given that we know these things and our hubris has led us into a profound ignorance of some of the most important and some of the most vital doctrines within the christian faith the most fundamental being of course the doctrine of the trinity uh, another one that is extremely fundamental is the incarnation of our Lord. Um, and so uh, an example of this, you know, that, that you can look back over the last few years and see is just things that have happened over uh, social media. And, you know, there's kind of two realities at play here, right? At an academic level, there's some really good work going on. You have individuals like, you know, James Dalzell and Stephen Doobie and, you know, a host of others, Matthew Levering and, you know, these guys doing doing great work. Uh, I, I could name others, Fred Sanders, uh, Scott Swain, um, Matthew Barrett, uh, doing fantastic work with regard to retrieving uh, a classical theology proper, a theology proper that really has been normative in the Christian tradition for the last however many years. I mean, you could say for the last 2,000 years. I mean, what we're going to do today is we're going to look back at a, a Cappadocian father and see that a lot of the things that he says in the 4th century uh, give historical precedent uh, for things that are said much later in writers like Thomas Aquinas and, you know, the the post-reform, post-reformation Orthodox like Francis Turretin and others. And so uh, what we've done in the last couple of centuries, uh, but especially in the last century or so, is we, we've entered into a profound season of ignorance with regard to these doctrines, and we've taken for granted that we know them, when in reality we don't. And, and this is why I appreciate the work of, of Dr. James Renahan and, and, and Sam Renahan, Dr. Sam Renahan, his son, uh, because they're asking humble questions that really have to do with, you know, asking, do we know the document that we actually claim to confess? You know, the Second London Confession. And it takes some humility to ask those kinds of questions, because after all, this is a document you've claimed to confess for perhaps decades. And to, 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 to have to say that, you know, maybe we don't know what, in fact, we've been confessing is, is kind of a humiliating thing to admit. But I think we need to admit it. And that's going to be the first step in growing in our understanding of these profound doctrines. 
Um, I'll give you a more recent example. Uh, Doug Wilson has been interacting with, of course, high-profile teachers over the last few years we've, we've discovered uh, have they have not admitted that perhaps they didn't have all the right answers. And instead, they've doubled down on the popular uh, social-esque Trinitarianisms of the last few decades. One example of that uh, is Doug Wilson. Um, and I don't like doing this. This is not going to be a, a podcast episode about a tweet. We're not going to exposit Doug's tweet here, but I do just want to throw this up on the screen to give you an example uh, of the kind of language that's being thrown around, language that, of course, would not be commonplace a matter of 500, 600 years ago. And so you have to ask the question, you know, what what has changed in that period of time? And, and we're not going to get into all that. But if you look at Wilson's response to, to um, Nicene Rick here on, on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. Doug says, is fatherhood, and he's asking the question, is fatherhood an attribute, and we can see that it's somewhat of a, a, a rhetorical question, or is it an attribute that you call by a different name to slide away from the problem? Uh, which, you know, is not, um, doesn't doesn't sound like faith-seeking understanding. Um, it seems like doubling down on, on perhaps a, a, a something that shouldn't be doubled down on. Um, but what he's asking, he's pressing Rick here about uh, the attribute of fatherhood and uh, and where he's going with it is something akin to eternal functional subordination where, you know, the father is the only one with the attribute of fatherhood and therefore has a distinct authority from that of the son and so on. And there are things that he says uh, that are along those same lines and blog articles and such. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up to, to say, you know, that kind of language would not have been commonplace during the time of the Reformation, during the time of confessional formulation, and really any time before that, it wouldn't have been commonplace, um, except among some sects that we wouldn't necessarily want to associate Christian Orthodoxy with. Um, and so uh, that's not a claim about where Doug Wilson is spiritually. It's not a claim about anything about his person, but the language isn't good. And, and the tendency and the proliferation of eternal functional subordination within, uh, you know, widespread evangelical and even reform circles is, is, uh, is an indication that there's a lot of work to be done. So what I want to talk about here is actually I just want to go through some excerpts from Gregory of Nyssa. And, and, I, and I find these helpful because what ends up happening is, you know, sometimes you'll get claims that, you know, the East, there's a, a distinct tradition going on in the East that, that the West wasn't privy to, that the West didn't really pick up on. And so, you know, the Trinitarian theology of an Aquinas or of, you know, the 17th century Puritans is going to look very different from that of the East. Now, when you, when you get to the Filioque, you know, controversy and, and whether or not the Spirit proceeds from uh, just the Father or or from both Father and Son, of course, you're going to have differences with regard to that. But are you going to have differences 
regarding, you know, the substance of the doctrine of divine simplicity? Are you going to have differences regarding the substance of, uh, of Trinitarian orthodoxy and, and uh, eternal generation? Uh, are you going to have differences regarding analogical predica predication and uh, the, sh the, the uh, shortcomings of creaturely language in, uh, in, in, in predicating things about an, an infinite, um, ineffable divine essence? Uh, no, I, I would suggest you're going to have a different, perhaps a, a distinct or a uh, a variation of uh, theological encyclopedia, if I could put it that way, or maybe a theological, better word would be theological vocabulary. Um, but in substance, are even, uh, even, you know, given the language difference between East and West, of course, they're even working along two different languages. Uh, predominantly Latin versus predominantly Greek. And that's, of course, going to affect the way in which things are articulated. But e even, I mean, in spite of the language differences and the differences in vocabulary, are, are the same things being referenced in substance with regard to the, the, the foundations of, of Christian theology? And I would say, the, yeah, in a lot of ways. Of course, you have, you have a, a, a latency a theological latency that exists between someone living in the 4th century and someone living in the 13th century, and that's not because there was new revelation being given during that time, and only the people in the 13th century had better knowledge of it than the people in the 4th century, but it's just because that pe people, uh, theologians, um, uh, from the close of the canon onwards, you know, it takes us time. <laughs> it takes us time to explore the depths and the wonders of God's Word. And so, you know, you go back to the fourth century and, and not all of the vocabulary and, and not, all, not all of the uh, terminology is, is worked out and formulated in terms of explaining uh, the scriptural data and things like that. So, of course, there's going to be differences. Uh, that readily granted, I think what Gregory of Nyssa has to offer uh, in terms of accommodated language and, and his understanding of accommodation, his understanding of divine incomprehensibility... Uh, is surprising, to say the least, given that he's coming from a 4th century context. Um, and, and a lot of what he says uh, gives um, historical precedent to a lot of things that are said later in later medieval thinkers uh, and, uh, and eventually in thinkers that are uh, ministering and writing in the 17th century and onward. So let's do this. We're going to uh, read a section from a work of Gregory of Nyssa uh, called On Not Three Gods, an answer to Alabius that we should not think of saying there are three gods. Of course, the summary of that title is On Not Three Gods. So he's basically trying to explain why, on the one hand, we can say there's only one God, and on the other hand, we can say there are three persons in the Godhead, without saying, and and, and this is where Gregory of, Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa draws the line, without saying that there are three gods in the Godhead, which is an error, would be an error of tritheism, and uh, would would be a damnable heresy. And so um, we're going to, what I'm going to do is I'm, gonna, I'm going to read 
this excerpt, and as I read it, I'll stop to make some comments and maybe even stop to relate um, some of this language to the current uh, misunderstandings and the current disputes, and, and hopefully trying to bring theological clarity through retrieving older theological language, if I could put it that way. So um, let's do this. This is early on in the work on Not Three Gods, and I am uh, gleaning this language out of a broader compilation of the Christology of the Fathers published by, uh, I think it's Westminster John Knox or something like that. I can't remember the name of that publisher. I see the, yeah, Westminster John Knox Press, uh, and uh, it's called, um, here's what it looks like, Christology of the Later Fathers, uh, edited by Edward Hardy. So, uh, this is page 259 of that volume. And uh, Gregory says this. He says, We say that every name... Put my readers on. He says, We say that every name, whether invented by human custom or handed down by the scriptures, is indicative of our... Con of our that's key here. Of our conceptions of the divine nature but does not signify what that nature is in itself. He's getting at the idea of divine ineffability or divine incomprehensibility, that God in himself is beyond us. When you start trying to speak about a being who is infinite, then you are using finite language to discuss the infinite. And that automatically means at the outset that our language isn't going to map onto that infinite divine object that we're talking about. And another way to say that is that our words do not encapsulate the essence of God. They do not comprehend him. Uh, and, and they can't even quantify him, so to speak, because he is altogether beyond quantification. And our words assume quantification, if I could put it that way. Our words assume the communication of little bits and pieces of knowledge. When we uh, predicate, uh, you know, something of a horse, we are, um, we are, comprehending and communicating a part of that horse. You know, when we say that the horse's mane is brown, well, those words correspond directly to the horse's mane. You know, we can't talk about God like that in any proper sense because God is not made up of parts. He's not quantifiable because he's infinite. He's altogether beyond that. And so what Gregory of Nyssa is saying here is that our language uh, the names that we impose upon God, whether those names be invented by us for utility or whether these names be given to us even in Scripture, even names given to us in Scripture do not comprehend the ineffable, infinite, divine essence. And so he's, he's, he's saying here that these names are indicative of our concepts. They are... They are uh, familiarities to us, things that we have experience with. For example, when we say power, God is powerful. Well, the only notions of power that we have are, are creaturely notions of power. That's the only experience with 
power that we really have. Um, even when we're talking about um, divine power in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even then we're talking about a, a communicated, accommodated power that is uh, effectual for us creatures and is an effect of the divine power. It's not as if we're talking about God giving a piece of himself to us or something like that. Um, and and so we we have to acknowledge at the outset, which is what Gregory of Nyssa is doing, the limitations of our language. All right, we have to acknowledge at the outset the limitations of our language. So to, you know, to bring this tweet back up from uh, Doug Wilson, uh, he's talking about attributes. Um, attributes, and, and, and Gregory is going to get into this here in a moment, attributes are uh, a particular way in which we refer to God that are derivative from the works of God. In other words, attributes as attributes are not truly and really in God as distinct things. Uh, attributes are concepts, for lack of a better term, that we derive from the works of God and then use in our predication about God, and it's always improper analogical predication because our words cannot comprehend the divine essence. Okay, so he he's, he goes on and he says this. This is, this is really good right here. I think for a fourth century author, it's very good. He says, but whatever terms there are to lead us to the knowledge of God, each of them contains a particular idea of its own. And you will not find any word among the terms especially applied to God, which is without some meaning. In other words, the words we impose upon God, the words we, we use to predicate things about God, are words that already have some meaning and, co and correspondence, some attachment in the created order. And he says, from this it is clear that the divine nature in itself is not signified by any of these terms. Now, what he's not, he's not saying that we can't use these terms to talk about God, but what he is saying is that these terms do not define or comprehend what the divine nature or the divine essence is in and of itself. Thomas Aquinas says the very same thing and then, uh, and then posits analogical predication as uh, an explanation of how we can talk about God using improper vocabulary. Um, he goes on, he says, rather... Rather is some attribute declared, there he's, he, now he's talking about attributes, rather is some attribute declared by what is said. For we say, perhaps, that the divine is incorruptible or powerful, two attributes, right? Or whatever else we are in the habit of saying. But in each of these terms, we find a particular idea which by thought and expression we rightly attribute to the divine nature so, in other words, it's it's good to use these terms to, to talk about God. But then he says this, they do not express what that nature essentially is. Let me read that last line again. But in each of these terms, attributes, in each of these attributes, these words we use to predicate things about God, in each of these terms, we find a particular idea which by thought and expression we rightly attribute to the divine nature but which does not express what that nature essentially is. Okay. He goes on, and I'm skipping some lines here, but he says, By the same principle, we find in all other cases that the significance attaching to divine names lies either in their forbidding wrong conceptions, that's your apophatic theology, so the way of negation, uh, So, and that's what he's talking about there. So, um, 
so divine names that we use to remote, uh, you know, uh, wrong notions about God. So, for example, infinite is a word that we use to remote from God, we to take away from God uh, the idea of finitude. Infinite just means not finite, and so it is an apophatic term. It's it's a it's a term that we use to actually negate finitude from God in finite. Okay, and that's what Gregory's saying here. We find in all other cases that the significance attaching to divine names lies either in their forbidding wrong conceptions of the divine nature or in their teaching right ones. So there's via positiva. So there's a via negativa where we negate wrong ideas about God in our theological language. And then there's the uh, via positiva where we predicate things about God analogically that describes something of what he is uh, in analogical terms. But they do not contain an explanation of the nature in itself. Even those, even those positive terms we ascribe to the divine essence do not contain an explanation of the nature in and of itself. Okay, and, and so this, this common conviction, and it's a common conviction amongst those living during the time of Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century, but it's a common conviction that remains all the way up into the Middle Ages and during the time of the Reformation and post-Reformation. Uh, and the way that this is further hashed out in the thought of theologians is in the notion of analogical predication. That in our predication of God, we are not speaking univocally. We're not speaking in a way that comprehends God in the same way that we would speak of a horse or a human being. We're speaking in terms of likeness or by way of attribution, by saying that basically this concept that we're familiar with in the created order, there's something like that in God, but we can't define what that is using our creaturely terms. That is analogical predication. He goes on and he says, We perceive then the varied operations of the transcendent power. This is key right here because it tells us about what an attribute is. We perceive then the varied operations. Another word for operations that might help you consider what Gregory is saying is works. Okay, so we perceive then the varied operations or works of the transcendent power, of the power of God, and fit our way of speaking of him to each of the works known to us, to each of the operations known to us. In other words, attributes are terms that we predicate of God in virtue of the works of God. So, in other words, we are perceiving God through his works, and we are developing language in virtue of perceiving God through his works, developing creaturely language that we utilize in order to speak of him so that, as Augustine says, so that we say nothing at all. Yes, all of our language falls short, but we say something so that we say, so, so that we can avoid saying nothing at all, something like that. Um, and so what Gregory of Nyssa is saying here is that, you know, language of attributes, when we talk about divine attributes, all of those divine attributes, you know, when we go to list them out, um, you know, we're, we're, we're essentially listing out things that we're familiar with in the created realm, in the created world, um, that, you know, are descriptions of the works of God, and we're using those terms to talk about God himself, and we have to understand that as we use those creaturely terms to talk about God himself, that our language is analogical, that it only corresponds to God by way of, of 
uh, of attribution or or similitude. Like like we're familiar with what power looks like here in this world, and we know that God that, that there's something like that in God, but it's it's greater than we could imagine. But because our language falls short, we'll we'll call God powerful, because there's something in God like power, but it's 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 beyond that. It, it's it 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 goes beyond our concepts and and our notions of of what power actually is. Yet we're still going to use the word power to describe God or to talk about God because if we didn't use if we didn't say something, then we just have to shut up and say nothing. And not even scripture does that. So we're going to take a cue from scripture and use creaturely language. Uh, some of that language is is theological language that we've developed and 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 use uh, in helpful ways. Some of that language is directly found in scripture. Um, and so hopefully that, that helps kind of not only shed light on the, uh, uh, what the ancient church was thinking in terms of divine ineffability and analogical language and all of that, but hopefully it also sheds light on what an attribute is. Um, and, and attributes not, um, an attribute's not like this thing in God that is next to another thing in God that's just another kind of attribute, right? Like, love is not this thing in God next to power and mercy. Uh, love is a, a a term, a concept that we have exp- creaturely experience with here that we predicate of God because we have no other way of talking about God. <laughs> but, so we're essentially saying like, yeah, there's something like love in God, but whatever that is, we can't define it and we can't comprehend it with our creaturely language. There's, it, it's, it's, it's infinitely greater than our language can, uh, it can grasp. Um, but we, we say something so that we are not reduced to saying nothing at all. Okay. And, and, and that's, that's in Gregory of Nyssa. This this conviction is is it it moves on up through into the Middle Ages and the time of the Reformation, like I mentioned earlier. Okay, one other thing I want to address here is the eternal relations of origin, uh, unbegottenness, begottenness, inspiration. Uh, so when we're talking about unbegottenness, we're talking about the Father who eternally begets uh, the only begotten Son. Uh, and then when we speak of spiration, we're talking about the spiration or the, the sending forth of the Holy Spirit um, from Father and Son, uh, the procession of the Holy Spirit from Father and Son. One of the things that I think is helpful in thinking about Trinitarian language in relation to the general language we apply in our theology proper just to God generally, just to the whole Godhead, just the whole Trinity, we could say, is to think of attributes as terms or as predicates that are ascribed or attributed to God. And since Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one God, all the attributes, all the divine attributes are attributed to each person of the Holy Trinity. 
if Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, they're the one God, the one, the same God, not three different gods, then it follows that anything we would say about the divine essence by way of attribution would apply to each of the persons of the Trinity. So if we say God is love, that means that Father is love, Son is love, Holy Spirit is love, yet there are not three loves, there is but one. If we say God is power, that means the Father is power, the Son is power, the Holy Spirit is power, yet there are not three powers, there is but one. If God is authority, then we could say the Father is authority, the Son is authority, the Holy Spirit is authority, yet there are not three authorities, there is but one. So when we're talking about attributes, we're talking about uh, predicates that we use to speak about the Godhead. And everything we say about the Godhead can be said about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> everything that we say about God can be said just as much of Father, just as much of Son, just as much of Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, they are co-equal and co-essential. Which means that if we're going to predicate power of the Father, we have to predicate the exact same power of Son and Spirit. Why? Because they're of the same divine essence. So, when Doug Wilson's asking, is fatherhood an attribute? We would say, we would want to say, no. Fatherhood is not an attribute. Um, it Fatherhood may be a predicate that we attribute to, to the Father, um, but if we're if we're trying to get down to the nitty gritty of why the Father is called the Father, then no, it's not a divine attribute. Uh, let me let me explain what I'm getting at here uh, by turning to the Second London Confession. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Chapter Two. Um, Paragraph 3, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding, uh, proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Peculiar relative properties and personal relations. That language there refers to unbegottenness, the unbegottenness of the Father. That's why the Father is called the Father, because he is first and unbegotten. The Son is called the Son and is distinguished from the Father in virtue of his begottenness. He's begotten of the Father. And then the Spirit is distinguished from Father and Son uh, in virtue of the fact that the Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son. And these are also called the eternal relations of origin. The only way in which Father, Son, and Spirit are distinguished are in virtue of those peculiar relative properties um, or personal relations, being, of course, uh, the Father's fatherhood 
is his unbegottenness begetting of the son. Uh, and then the son's sonhood or sonship is just the son's proceeding or being generated of the father, being begotten of the father. And then the spirit's um, place in the Holy Trinity is his position as third is in virtue of his procession from father and son by way of spiration or spiration, however you want to pronounce it. And so that's the only way in which they're distinguished. You can't... Now, if we go, if we go and we take an attribute like authority... Remember, attributes are, are, are that which we attribute to God. Just And so that means that anything we can say about God, we must say also about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if they're truly co-equal and co-essential. So if we go and take an attribute like authority and we apply it peculiarly to the Father, giving the Son a lesser authority or a submissiveness to that fatherly authority, then what we're doing is we're dividing the divine essence. Because remember, an attribute is that which is spoken of or predicated of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the moment you start taking what the divine essence is and giving more of that to one of the persons and less of that to the other persons, you are you, you begin dividing, divvying out, even quantifying in some way, the divine essence. Um, and, 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 and that's that cannot fly in an Orthodox Trinitarian model. Uh, as the Confession brings out, as the Nicene Creed brings out nicely, God from God, light from light. Everything that God is, is communicated to the Son through generation from the Father. Okay, everything that God is is communicated to the Son through the Father begetting him eternally. All right, And so uh, the entire divine essence communicated in the person of the Son, all right, uh, generated from the Father. And so uh, w- while we would distinguish meaningfully between the persons, there really are distinct persons in the Godhead, those distinctions are only the eternal relations of origin, the manner in which the one divine essence subsists. The order, the eternal relations of order are also called the eternal relations, uh, the eternal, the eternal relations of origin are also called the eternal uh, order of subsistence. And so uh, that's the only way in which the persons are distinguished. Um once we start taking divine attributes like authority or power or love, and we we begin to appropriate more of that perfection to one person and and kind of step down the other two persons, well, that's the moment that we divide the essence. Um, one person has more of the essence, oddly, than the other two persons do, and, and so the conviction that uh, the persons are co-equal and co-essential, consubstantial with one another. Uh, flies right out the door. And so hopefully that's helpful. Uh, that's not everything, of course, it could be said about this. And 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 and, and uh, I'm 100% sure that it could be said better by somebody else. But uh, hopefully this is kind of a starting point. Like as you think about Trinitarian Orthodoxy, as you think about how we speak of God, uh, the things that we say about God, and how, how that actually 
you know, interfaces with who God is in himself. And we saw that in Gregory of Nyssa, and you see throughout Orthodox Christian theology, that creaturely language can't do it, can't comprehend God. And so we have to understand that our predication always falls short. Um, as we think about these things, hopefully this is a helpful kind of uh, ledge to step on as you progress in your uh, journey uh, to uh, understand God and to uh, to glorify in uh, glorify Him and in, in, in knowing Him and 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 praising Him and guys that this this wonderful theology which which becomes quite technical and difficult uh, the proportion the 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 extent to which you become involved in these kinds of conversations and and, and this kind of thinking is the extent to which your doxology should grow. Ought to erupt in doxology. Uh, the contemplative life ought to uh, flourish into a wonderful, uh, active life of worship and and doxological praise. Anyways, hopefully uh, you guys uh, benefited from that. If you did, uh, consider sharing it. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day.